0: Welcome
1: to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS Pod. I am Lalita Duparan, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the centre are available at SouthAsia.Stanford.edu. Today, we welcome Priya Setia, Professor of History at Stanford. She specializes in modern British and British Empire history, especially in the Middle East and South Asia. She has written many books on these subjects, the latest one of which is called Time's Monster, How History Makes History. And it is this book which will be the main focus of our conversation today. Priya, thank you so much for making time for me. How are you? Thanks.
2: Thank you so much for having me on the SAS pod. Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm very excited about our conversation. I have some very uh, basic, but perhaps also somewhat profound questions lined up for you. Uh, And the first one is perhaps a little bit of an old chestnut, but uh, in your opinion, who writes history? Who writes history? Uh uh,
2: Besides us uh, kind of professional historians, um, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Actually, what professional historians produce as historical scholarship is just sort of one river flowing into this vast lake uh, of historical um, storytelling, I guess you could call it. Um, And lots of other people uh, and organizations produce things that flow into the same lake. Uh, of varying degrees of quality, whether politicians or so-called popular historians, or museums, or films, and uh, you know, historical fiction novels, TV dramas these days. And then you know, each of us, we have our own sense of the past, which is um, sort of created by our interaction with all these other sources. And then we wind up contributing in different ways too. Um, so there's you know, there's always a tussle over. Uh, who's saying what, who should be saying anything and, and what are the most reliable voices to listen to in that lake?
1: Um, To what extent do you think? I mean, historical fiction is a big thing uh, right now, and I'm reminded of a podcast I listened to where uh, the the two um, hosts of the podcast were uh, talking about Meghan Meghan Markle and basing all their information around the royal family around from the Crown, Um, Mm -hmm. and and it bothered me somewhat. I mean, how 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 do you what what are your feelings around that when people kind of take fiction as history?
2: Well, I think we have to be mindful when something is. The Crown is quite um, openly marketed as historical fiction, right? Right. So we as um, viewers, or if you want to call it consumers, we have to, that's on us to be sure we don't mistake that as um, actual history. I mean, it's a starting point for thinking about the past, um, for getting a feel maybe of the past. um, And, you know, being aware that the feel or the styling of the past is very particular to a certain... Class, especially in that uh, in that series, but I mean, it's it's on us to go and, and dig deeper and find out, you know, how accurate um, is this portrayal of the past? And there's so much. Each of these shows generates so much commentary, sort of automatically. Lots of historians or um, specialists in different parts of uh, of that, uh, you know, maybe people who know about um, clothing or costume. You know, people from all kinds of perspectives will jump in and start. Um, objecting to things or um, you know applauding things and that's part of the conversation around the series so insofar as it generates a conversation that's that's wonderful but um, you know it's you, you can't be a careless viewer or a reckless viewer and just miss take your historical fiction as the truth it's a creative um, kind of play with with the truth
1: it's, but but that would be true for all history and and i guess this i mean Yes, we have to be careful consumers, but maybe not just of historical fiction, but also of history as portrayed by whoever writes history. Um, so uh, somewhat unusually for the SassPod, I'm going to play a short clip of a comedy set uh, as a seg into um, my next question. So let me just get that up.
2: So I am on the fifth of five kids. Yes, my older sister, she's one of these people, she won't read a newspaper and she won't watch the news on TV, but she is addicted to the History Channel. So if you want her opinion on a current event, you have to wait like a hundred years. She's gonna be so excited when she finds
1: out we had a black president. I love that that is the comedian Bobby Oliver talking about her family in Georgia so my question here is who consumes history who is it for
2: I mean as a sort of um way to get at this question I want to go back to something you said earlier about you know how we, even as readers of history as opposed to historical fiction we need to to be careful right. and I think one one important distinction to make there is that you can most often, trust that what's um, that the the facts at least that are um, made available in a historical text, as opposed to a historical fiction text, are, are supposed to be um, objectively true to some extent, right? What you're there, as, what you're supposed to be sort of. Um, careful about as a reader in that case is you know have they been woven together in a persuasive way is the narrative or meaning that's being extracted from them um, convincing and then you might read another book on the same topic working from the same facts or an, um, an additional set of facts that have been brought in um, and that maybe comes to a slightly different conclusion that you find more persuasive so so it's a different kind of uh Suspension of belief, you know, in, in either of those two cases. And I think what's interesting about that, um, the little uh, the comic uh, bit that you just shared is that, um, you know, what's partly funny is that this woman is, she's watching um, a history channel um, that's, you know, about the news, I guess, that's in the past. But um, she may not realize, and we even may not realize that when we're watching this, the news of the past, when we're watching history, the people telling it, the producers of that history channel, um, their decision-making is shaped by what's happening in the news today, right? The programs that they put, she may not know that there was a Black president, but she may suddenly find that the history channel is full of programs about uh, Black politicians or, you know, uh, the story of Kenya or immigration or something that is somehow related to the news of the day. And that's shaping the, the the subject matter that's coming to in history and even the way it's told and even who may be telling those stories on the history channel
1: but that yes uh, absolutely but then that's that's more to um how to the point of being a careful consumer like how can we be careful if we don't of necessity really have access to all the facts we only know what we know I mean,
2: it's, it's a question of a constant process of learning, uh-huh. right? Even for people who produce historical knowledge, and even for those of us who consume it, um, and we're, you know, historians are always both. Um, So it's, the thing with history is that it's, it's, you know, it's always straining after this objective truth, um, you know, in the social science sense, but it's also always a humanistic endeavor that can never quite... Get to the point of actually achieving that truth, but you know, so you you there's always one more book you can write on every subject. We will never be done with right. understanding. Uh, you know, the rise of Obama or, you know, why did World War II happen? Or, you know, wh- what caused the rise of Hitler, whatever, you know, all the, quite, there's, there, we will always, will never be done because there are always going to be new sources that come to light or new perspectives or new ways of interpreting them. And then, you know, so, so you have to accept that it's a continual process of learning and, and that that's actually a very good thing and a very enjoyable thing. And it's a collective
1: thing um, that we're all doing together. Um, thank you. I, I want to uh, zoom in a little bit on the book that um, I announced in the introduction. We were going to talk about, um, and so around this question of you know who writes history, who consumes it, and and how the ongoingness, I guess, of the writing process, um, the the driving force behind a uh, Times Monster seems to be um and forgive me if this is too simplistic uh that historians have served empire in many ways um can you speak more to that
2: yeah sure um so the book tells the story of the emergence of the modern historical discipline as we know it now in the 18th century um in europe and um traces the way people with a certain um way of thinking about history you know the. the the main features being that it's going to be a story of progress um, and that great men are gonna have an important role in it. These two um, principles uh, being being really important in that way of thinking about history. Um, That this this way of thinking about history becomes very influential and that particular um, historians become really important with this view, become really important policy makers and decision makers Um, in the, in the unfolding of um, the British conquest and, and uh, rule of so much of the world and the creation and um, sustaining of the British empire. And so, you know, you can, you can take figures like, um, you know, Edmund Burke, or, you know, uh, Sir William Jones, or um, people like that in the 18th century. You can think of John Stuart Mill in the 19th century. You can think of, um, you know, Winston Churchill in the 20th century. These are all people who were known in some ways as historical scholars, but also, or scholars of history, I should say, but also pe- these were the actual, you know, politicians or bureaucrats making really important decisions about the empire and drawing on a particular understanding of history, um, which was basically that, you know, history is going to be a story of progress, and but we may need to keep a stiff upper lip at times and tolerate doing, uh, things that we're not comfortable with, uh, securing the knowledge that we will be vindicated by history in the future. So this, I mean, this is a, still a very, very common belief. Um, I consider it a sort of core tenet of liberalism, uh, which was the primary ideology of um, British empire and um, is still influential today, influential in American empire too. Um, and so the book tells the story, of, you know, this this kind of twinned history of uh, the his, of the historical discipline and the British Empire. And what you also see happening is that people start becoming aware of the way that this um, understanding of history was complicit in empire, and a new view um, understanding of history starts to emerge in the period of decolonization, which should also be familiar to us today, which is that. History may not be a story of progress, but as historians, what we're doing is um, redeeming um, the lost voices of the past, right? Mm-hmm. And they may not be great, the you know great men, but sort of the people who who have uh, suffered under what E.P. Thompson called the enormous condescension of posterity. Mm-hmm. So that's a very different approach to history, and that I think still remains in tension with that the the kind of um, the great man progress oriented type.
1: You have this uh, tweet that you have uh, early on in the book of, uh, of uh, somebody saying, uh, somebody kind of writing a fictitious conversation about uh, the people saying, oh, you know, I wonder how history will look back on this. And then the historian saying, well, you know, we have opinions right now. And everybody's saying, oh, you know, we can't wait till the future till we can find out what, what how history will look back on this. And that I love that. Uh, also, I love that you have a tweet in your book about <laughs> history. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Yeah, that was a great tweet. It was by um, Chris Kempchnell, uh, who was um, then, uh, he's, he's in the UK. I, I'm blanking just from the, I think he was at the University of Sussex then. He may still be now. But yeah, it was a wonderful tweet that I think got, you know, tens of thousands of likes and he periodically reshares. And it. it just really captures this, um, the irony of this, you know, this idea that we're always waiting for historians in the future to to vindicate us or to judge us or so and, and in a way sometimes it becomes an excuse not to act like we don't have to do anything people in the future will look back and know who is wrong but um but i think one of chris's points was that well actually there are historians right now who have things to say that could be helpful and that uh you know um and that we're you know often studiously ignoring because what what they're saying um might make us uncomfortable or doubt uh, what, what the majority want to do.
1: And there is this belief that we have to learn. I mean, I love that question. Why should we learn history It's such a um, well, I don't find it helpful. I don't find those kinds of questions helpful. uh, The why questions. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the answers to that question is, you know, we we have to learn from our mistakes from the past. And I think I asked this question to other historians I've had on the Saspot. I mean, that's patently untrue. That's not happening. We're not learning anything so how or would you not agree with that? Maybe that's too big a statement, but we don't seem to have learned very much, let's put it that way.
2: Do we so the question is do we actually learn from the past?
1: Yeah, I mean the idea that we or have to learn from we the learn past, from so that we don't don't that we don't replicate mistakes. I mean, I see human the world making more mistakes. I, I don't know that I think that we're getting better. I mean, it's
2: one thing to say we shouldn't try to learn from the past. We, uh, because it's not useful it's another thing to say we shouldn't uh, try to learn from the past because it doesn't work because we're not good at it I mean I <laughs> I mean we may consistently fail but I do think um, one way to um, I mean the past is always with us in the present anyway right the, the world we live in is is a, it's it's the product um, of, of everything that's that's gone before and so if we want to know why we're here we We've got to understand the past um, to understand how why why our present is the way it is. So that's one reason to study history. Um, and then in the course of doing that, I think inevitably you may realize, insofar as you're you're finding your present unsatisfactory, <laughs> that the things that in the past that led to it, then you, you really wouldn't want to replicate that. The question is how how do you avoid those patterns from recurring and. Um, you know, that's, a, again, a very collective effort. And I don't think it's one that will ever be just, oh, we've learned from the past and we're not gonna do it again. I think we have to understand that it's supposed to be a struggle because it's actually not a story of progress. Um, and, and it's in the course of that struggle that um, that you experience the things that um, you're expecting history to deliver you, uh, for you, such as a feeling of justice or a feeling of liberty or a feeling of greater equality. Right you, mm-hmm. Those aren't things at the end of the rainbow. They're things that <laughs> that you that you experience in the course of, of trying to get there.
1: Um, one of the things I love about the book is that you um, and, and, and I, we're speaking about this now, the, the relevance of historical events, but I feel that you do that in a particularly, um, appealing way. Um, for instance, in your description of the liberal justification of uh, the British response to the rebellion of 1857. I felt like I was reading a 2021 description of a Toyota Prius driver with full apologies to all Toyota Prius drivers (laughs) in our (laughs) audience, kind of flattening that into a stereotype. But this kind of paternalistic view of intervention that you describe in 1857 that we see happening, for instance, right now uh, around the quote unquote women and girls in Afghanistan and yeah. So again, how do we get out of repeating history in that way? It's 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 interesting to see and it's very, um, I found it very satisfying to read how you work that into the narrative, but it's also very frustrating.
2: I mean, I think what you're pointing out, you know, the kind of continued resonance, the profound resonance of sort of 19th century British imperial thinking um, in our own time just speaks to the stickiness um and our, i mean the our continued commitment to the same values of that time like that time isn't really over it's still our time yeah so um we won't uh get past that and stop seeing um stop feeling the resonance of that until we've actually learned from that, right? And I think right now in some of the conversations I'm seeing about, for instance, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the kind of total disconnect between um, media, like corporate media, I would say, and policy elites, um, their disconnect with what ordinary Americans feel who are actually quite supportive of the withdrawal. I think you see that, um, you know, there's a certain set of people who are um, still committed to that liberal orthodoxy um, that underwrote British imperialism in the 19th century, which is that we're here for some kind of um, uh, claimed a humanitarian purpose. Right. right. At point we're, we're committing violence to, to stop violence, you know, as as um, paradoxical as that sounds to most people but there you know there's enough people still committed to that that, that those are the people who are really unhappy about um, the withdrawal but I think there's a lot of just sort of quiet support for that that I um, that's also uh, palpable in this time so you know it's a that's an improvement from all these 20 years when uh you know um those voices or that that segment of public opinion could just be ignored um even though again and again um we saw you know with the election of obama and even the election of trump there was so much anti-war um sentiment in the country that both of those politicians capitalized on but then didn't quite deliver on right um but it's always been there so i think yeah i mean um I think there might be a disconnect between elites and, and ordinary people, but you know, we can say that even in the 19th century, there were, uh, there were lots of people who were critical, even in Britain, of what um, uh, the British kind of political establishment, I guess, was, was doing in India in, in 1857, 58. Um, you know, Karl Marx was in London at the time and very disapproving of both what the British were doing and the kind of um, logic, uh, humanitarian logic that they were offering to justify it. So there's always been
1: dissent. Right, but I feel that in popular opinion, even when people are anti-war, anti-violence, the the salvationist arguments then wins those people back over. And and that is a a a a bigger problem on the the liberal left. That there's
2: a moral confusion, I think, that comes about, and that's why I wanted to write this book because it, it suddenly occurred to me that this is historical thinking that's creating that moral confusion, where people think, "Oh, I know this doesn't feel right, and this is this I, I'm being forced to do things that I don't feel comfortable with that sort of violate my um, most obvious, ordinary ethical commitments." But I believe that this sort of has to be done. For some higher good that we right. will, who's, who's, you know, which will come to fruition in the future, and so we endlessly defer on our, our actual, um, on obeying our actual uh, moral discomfort. And I think once we recognize that habit, we are going to be less likely to give into it. And this is what anti-colonial thinkers, you know, I mentioned Marx, but other kinds of anti-colonial thinkers have, have been urging us to do. Like when Gandhi and uh, when Gandhi brings up nonviolence, he's he's saying, well, the Kind of uh, Western liberal thought is saying, um, ignore your moral compunctions, right, right. Uh, for the sake of some some progress uh, narrative. But and, and so do violence in the name of progress. But um, Gandhi and nonviolence says actually no, you you can't justify violence for that reason for any reason. You what well, if it's if it's right to be nonviolent, it's right to be nonviolent, right? It's kind of much more about present accountability.
1: Yeah, I I I I see what you're saying. I feel that's it's a, a, it's it, it's complicated, but mm-hmm. I think uh, nevertheless the um, I mean there, I feel there's also a lot of violence in non-violence, but I suppose yeah. you would say or Gandhi would say there's more violence in violence, so uh, <laughs> there, there can never be non-violence in violence.
2: Absolutely, I mean like that. That's the. the I mean, you have to have a utopian ideal that you're aspiring towards, Mm. but the thing about utopias is is that you always have to know you're never going to get there, but you need that motivation, right? So we're never going to get to a world of actually no violence, but we have to always want to get it for each of our individual sakes, right? So...
1: (laughs) Do you see what I mean? I, I love that. Yes. Yeah. I struggle with that. I'm supposed to do a vision board. I'm supposed to imagine everything I want in my life, and I find I can't get myself there because I'm continuously saying, "Well, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen." Right. But that's apparently not the idea of the vision board. <laughs>
2: you're talking <laughs>
1: yourself out of it then yeah like yeah. why would I, why would I aspire to that it's not going to happen and and so like it's got so much disappointment built in whereas you seem to be saying you have to aspire to the impossible yes. it's the only way out and
2: it's and the in the struggle to fulfill that aspiration you get something from that that's not nothing there's a lot of learning there's a lot of maybe even actual concrete achievement right you know uh, that can happen that may still fall short of the actual you know fulfilling the actual aspiration but it's still worth doing you can't second guess you know where it's actually going to wind up because there are too many people collectively involved and we don't know you know um, how our coordinated or uncoordinated efforts will ultimately
1: coordinate and, and where we will wind up. So, um, segging somewhat from the vision board, <laughs> quite early on in the book, you seem to compare history to astrology, uh, and I feel <laughs> we're kind of heading in that direction in this conversation, so i I, I I've, I thought that was uh, very amusing. I also, I'm pretty sure that that comparison would not have sat well with uh, some of your colleagues. Tell me the backstory. Well, I mean, what I was, I I don't, when I, I, what I'm comparing, uh,
2: when I uh, bring up astrology in the book is the fact that, you know, astrology gives you a theory of agency. Like if you believe in astrology, and there are different ways of believing in astrology too, and I'm no expert <laughs> in any of this. But basically, it's saying, oh well, you know, um, at certain times in the month, or where, depending on the planetary alignments, you will feel like this, or you will have this amount of energy to do this. And it, and if you follow that, it actually that's a kind of, kind of a theory of your agency and how you can act in your life. It actually affects how you start to act in your life, right? right. And it actually then affects your life. Right. And I realized that Um, in history, and there are different versions of history too, um, offers you a theory of agency too. It could offer you a theory of great man agency, it could offer you a theory of, you know, uh, the proletariat makes history or the uh, bourgeoisie makes history, or it could give you, you may have a theory of sort of environmental sort of lingerie notions of how history unfolds, and depending on which one you believe in, that's really going to affect how you actually act and then how history actually unfolds. And the example, the one I focus on in this book is the way um, the liberal historical imagination, as we were talking about earlier, you know, when you when you feel like history is going to be a story of progress, you end up um, tolerating a lot of things you may not otherwise be comfortable with. Or when you think history is going to be made by great man and you don't think you're a great man, you may sit back and wait for a great man to take care of things. And so that was the comparison I was drawing is that, um, you know, how how um, it's sort of to, to use astrology as a way to, I think the way we think about history is so um, normalized and sort of naturalized as part of our mental furniture. And by using that, analogy I was trying to get us to recognize the mental furniture that we've become so comfortable with that we don't even realize it's governing how we act so
1: I love it I think it's uh, I think it's very smart and it, it was smart in the book but I, I hearing you talk about it it's um, uh, I like it a lot and I would urge everyone to go and and read the book of course but uh, that section in particular um we had the conversation about, you know, if books for kids, you know, where does this one line up? It's an, un- an uncomfortable conversation for moms to have because, of course, <laughs> you always say we don't have favorites. <laughs> of course not. But this book <laughs> does feel like a very hard act to follow. What's what's next for you? Oh, um. Yeah,
2: you know, it's funny. This book was not a planned book. It was an accidental um, (laughs) book.
1: It's back to the child analogy. I love it.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was unintentional. Um, (laughs) That's funny. Um, So so I think, I I mean, I haven't had a chance during the pandemic to do any archival research. I've been doing a lot of writing that's sort of relating to, um, you know, that's generated, you know, by this book, things that have come out of this book and also out of this um, this time that we're in, which has involved a lot of um, demands for reckoning with um, the history of empire. So um, I've, I've been very busy with all kinds of writing related to that shorter works. But in terms of a book project, I actually feel like I want to go, um, once I can go to archives, I want to write something on um, colonialism in Punjab, which is a part of Um, South Asia that I'm from. And a lot of, um, and I'm not a South Asian historian, I'm a British historian. So I I very much want to look at certain episodes in um, British uh, rule in Punjab from the middle 19th century till the middle of the 20th century that I feel are sort of buried beneath the rubble of partition um, and sort of got forgotten and, you know, to try and sort of imagine uh, paths that might have been taken uh, if those, if we if we had even known more about those episodes uh, earlier, you know. So uh, that's what I'm thinking of next. Um, yeah, if I can ever. And where
1: would the I archives to... <laughs> be? And where would the archives be? And I have a, I have a sneaky suspicion what you're going to say, but.
2: <laughs> well. Um, I'm not sure. Some of them, I, uh, I I know there'll be some things in the UK, but there are going to be some things in. I'm wanting to look at uh, if um, lo- local archives in uh, even the town that my family is from in, mm. in India, which is a place called Mukser, um, and I'm not sure what I would find. But there are also several places that are now in Pakistan that I would like to mm. look at. So I'm not sure logistically. Uh, you know, how I would be able to do that. Um, I, I've been there before, but um, let's see, you know, uh, how, how it goes. But I definitely have plenty that I could do from within Indian Punjab and the UK just to start and then
1: see see how it goes. But Oh, well, that sounds wonderful. I did think you were going to say the British Library. And I have to say, (laughs) (laughs) uh, because that's somehow where we always end up. And well, not somehow, we know why. Um, But I mean, it amuses me, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word when you say you're not a South Asian historian, you're a British historian, because I mean, the overlap, especially studying empire. I mean, how are you not a South Asian historian?
2: Well, I mean, uh, for the most part, I mean, I've done a bit of work using... um, South Asian sources, um, especially actually in in this latest book, In Times Monster. But before that, um, the earlier two books were not connected at all. But um, I actually was first admitted to do South Asian history when I started my PhD. And I sort of veered off into European history and narrowed in on British history and then did a lot of work on the British in the Middle East and so on. And so I'm kind of returning in a sense to uh, South Asian history and, um, my original interest even as a South Asianist was in the history of Punjab and I guess it, there comes a time in life where you're sort of, um, uh, especially because it's, it's that's a personal history, maybe it had to wait until I had uh, thought more about empire and thought more about um, um, anti-colonialism and got to a point where I knew how I wanted to approach this history and I think some of it actually will be personal. Um, I do want to focus on, as I said, Muksern, but also right. Huan, which is mm. where my mother's family are from, uh-huh. um, but also some things that, that aren't personal. So we'll
1: see. Um, just a, a, to wrap up, um, speaking of the personal, I mean, I think I've said many things I really enjoyed about the book, but one of the things is that you're a great writer. I mean, it's an incredibly well-written book, if I, if I may say so, and it's a good read. It's just a good read. And I'm wondering if, if you do other writing because I feel that, that we can be quite, um, I don't know, the words restricted by academic writing and that it always has to be of, of a certain way. And sometimes it's nice to not have to worry about footnotes. So, you do you write other things?
2: I mean, um, I write a lot for um, like popular media, like apart from my, I guess, formal sort of scholarly writing, I do do a lot of writing for the media, um, which is not often footnoted, but it still has to be based on things that are footnoted. Sure. So my mentor at UC Berkeley is um, Thomas Lecur, and he was someone who would do a lot of writing and sort of like, you know, the London Review of Books and places like that. And at one point, Early in my career, I had an opportunity to write the TLS and I asked him for advice. And he said, you should do it because it gives you a chance to learn a different kind of writing. It's like a different voice that you get to develop. Right, And I, I think what we're doing is in our scholarly work we're always already translating it for our teaching purposes like your lectures are aimed at non-specialists so we do this routinely as um, academics and so it's it's actually not such a leap then I mean I think of these media pieces as as another um, type of teaching, I guess, it's it's another way of sort of disseminating scholarly knowledge to a more general audience. And I do think it's, it is helpful to be able to um, talk about uh, what you work on in different registers, and to have to, uh, to um, build muscle, you know, that's the wrong metaphor, to like to actually have different voices. um, Yeah, yeah. You know, to cultivate those different writing voices, I think, and it's actually fun. It's yes. fun to try different kinds of writing. And, it, and and when you do the media writing, that also has a, um, an impact on your scholarly writing and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And it just gives more freshness, I think, to the whole experience of writing. Um, and and that that's, feels good for you as a
1: writer. <laughs> you know? Well, it feels good to the reader too, I can assure you. Uh, Priya Setia, thank you so much for making time f- uh, for the Saspot today. Thank you so much
2: for having me. This was was
1: really fun, thanks. I enjoyed so much talking to you. Uh, I also want to thank Simrat Mataru for doing the post-production and Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro music to the Sasquatch. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Centre for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for joining us and I hope you can tune in again soon.
0: So...